Welcome back to More in Common. I am your co-host, Keith, with my man. What it is, I'm Rodney. I'm your other host. And in this experience of our podcast, we're all about compassion, compassionate conversation. And I just want to submit to you today that compassion is free and you can give it to others. And I want to I throw out a little experiment. The next time somebody pisses you off, the next time somebody says something that you just think is moronic and idiotic, I want you to think to yourself, I don't want you not to say this to them, just this the first part of the experiment. Just think to yourself, I love them. I love you. You're a human. Mm. That's it. I care. I, I care about your experience. Not even that. It's like, I love you. Like, that's it. Like, I don't have to think about you any further. I'm just going to say I love you and then move on with my day instead of giving them all of this negative, hateful energy that ruins my day because I'm the only one. That, look, compassion is here to save you and the world. You don't have to give them all. You don't have to give them your day. So I'm just suggesting you don't have to. I love it. And today, a very compassionate Dr. Janelle McCauley joins us for an amazing conversation about mindfulness, about more mindfulness, her journey to discovering the her values, her, her uh, priorities. And uh, at the end, we do an amazing mental exercise, mental uh, mindfulness push-ups. Men- mindful uh, mindful mental push-ups. We do mental push-ups over a mindful minute. We, we talk about harmony, which is something that Keith and I have been very, very interested in. Uh, we're going to be talking about that a lot. You'll see it. Uh, we talk about labor learning laughing loving and leading um we talk about competitive stress we talk about success and what is that sticky word talk about alignment a lot this is a really it's really good episode and and uh, janelle gives some really good advice for parents she gets some really good advice for leaders and she gets some really good advice for organizations so listen in That right there, when I had the conversation with his parents around everything that had happened and how I didn't have a good answer for him as to, or for them as to how their son was in that position, right? And why he didn't have better tools, why he didn't feel empowered. And it was then that I started being more directive and writing policy because the pain of fear is very powerful right? You're fearful of other people's opinions. You're fearful of just like what could potentially happen. But the pain of regret is also really powerful. And I just want to live with the regret of knowing I knew things to help people. And I kept silent because I was fearful of this organization and the way we've always done things. So today we are with Dr. Janelle McCauley. She is a U.S. Air Force veteran, has managed human performance under high-stress situations for over two decades. As a military leader and combat pilot, she experienced the same stress, frustration, and fears that leaders and teams in corporate America face daily in their personal and professional lives. Her own personal journey led to her earning a Ph.D. with work in the field of strategic health and human performance. With her innovative leadership style, she was the first leader to introduce mindfulness as a proactive performance strategy within the U.S. military. And Dr. McCauley is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, has a master's degree in kinesiology from the Pennsylvania State University, and a Ph.D. with work in the field of strategic health and human performance. She's a certified wellness educator, a yoga instructor, and holds a certificate in plant-based nutrition. Janelle is a TEDx speaker and a mother of two who is on a mission to help leaders and organizations excel in high stress and rugged environments by showing them how to lean into each moment. Welcome to the show, Janelle. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here with you guys today. We're excited to have you as well. And we're going to start it with a reference to your website. 
Okay. It says something interesting, and I don't know if everybody catches it, but I did. That work-life balance is an overstated myth if you don't prioritize you. My question, though, is because I've really been thinking a lot about what balance is. What is this thing called work-life balance that we throw around as a marketing term? How do you define work-life balance for yourself? I actually don't like the term work-life balance. Instead, I use the term work-life harmony because I think it's, it balances an unrealistic expectation for anyone, right? You're never going to operate throughout your day and think, wow, I was perfectly balanced and that I did my work stuff and my life stuff in such a perfectly equal way. And so you're starting off with an un, setting an unrealistic expectation that you're never going to achieve. And I think that's what causes a lot of people to have so much discomfort and they struggle trying to achieve that goal because it's technically unachievable. And so the way that I've looked at it is if you step back and you, uh, and you try to understand, well, what am I really trying to achieve with this idea of work-life balance? And I really settled on this word harmony because I think that, you know, there are certain days that I work more than I have my life asked, you know, my, my, um, I focus on my life goals, but then there's other times where it's more about life and less about work. And so is the aggregate, right? And am I doing it in a harmonious way so that I can truly find the joy and the laughter and the learning and the love and all the amazing things that life has to offer? Um, I learned it the hard way because for, I would say the first 13 years of my military career, I only saw the laboring and the hard work. And I get to the end of my day and I could think, man, I worked really hard today, but I missed out on so many other things that would help me turn from surviving into thriving as an individual. And so my, I'm really big and we're in compete to create. We teach people how to craft personal philosophies, right? Like kind of what anchors you as an individual. So you know who you are and how to show up in a world-class way. And so my personal philosophy, I like to call them my five L's and it's labor, laugh, love, learn, uh, lead. Um, my son's is labor, laugh, love, learn, lead, listen. He has a sixth L because <laughs> we share a personal philosophy, but those five L's remind me that every day I need to harmonize all of them. Not that I do them in equal parts, but that I do every single one of them every single day. And some days you get to the end of the day and you're like, did I love today? Did I laugh? Did I learn? And I go through that with my kids. And if we didn't laugh, like the tickle monster comes out. We have a moment, right? To make sure we touch on all of those things every day. Yeah. I, um, I'm on this clarifying journey of understanding what that actually means. And it's way harder when you're so used to not being in harmony. Like I think about it like a musical instrument when something's finely tuned. But if you don't know what a well-tuned piano sounds like, you can still play the keys and you never like the piano. But then all of a sudden you tune it. and It's like, oh, it's a beautiful instrument. And I'm in the process of tuning that energy to understand like what that physical feeling is. I came to a realization this morning is part of when I fall out of harmony is when I rely too much on what pulls me in the direction. So the reactive work, the going from one thing to the other without not even giving myself time to meditate, but without giving myself space to just exist and think and process the world in a way that centers it, then I can react. And I'm throughout the day far more harmonized because I, I gave that, I, I tapped a tuning fork at the beginning. Which of the day. that actually so, leads really uh, nicely into my question. Cause I, I want to ask, what does harmony feel like to you or mm. for you? So that's a great question. And I think it, it, it addresses what Keith was just saying it's different for everybody. I think everybody needs to spend some time in a self-reflective space to really figure out what is important about their lives and how they can prioritize achieving that sense of harmony. Because really, it's going to be individual. I use my L's as a way to help me prioritize the things that are, that are most important. And I realize that my connection to nature, and there's a lot of research oh, yeah. behind this as well, 
right? I call it like getting the hashtag oxygen, right? I need that every day in order for me to feel like my day was in harmony. And when you're sitting on Zoom calls all day and you never get outside to just take a couple deep breaths, because it's, to me, it's more than just that meditation, this focus on, you know, my well-being and my health and how I harmonize that is also about this active space of being outside, feeling grounded and doing that in some way, shape or form. And look, I lo- I'm lucky to live in Utah where I can do that all seasons of the year in a very intentional way. But I have found that that is completely tied to my definition of harmony. And then identifying my priorities, which are my faith, family, service, and health, right? How each of those are touched on a daily basis, um, I think also makes me feel like I harmonized it, right? Like if I, I was just about, you know, family all day or just about service all day or just about my health all day, it needs to kind of be not an equal parts balance, but a harmonious way that I touch each of those on a daily, on a daily basis. And then my personal philosophy reminds me to reconnect with it if I'm not. First of all, love the, the, the nature thing. We just to have an amazing conversation about that for an hour. And I put it on my, I actually put it on my to-do list to walk today. So 13 years, I would say you were out of harmony, mostly because you weren't focusing on it and you hadn't come to that conclusion. So how long did it take you? And what, I know the trigger moment with, with your son and that you talk about, but how did you get to labor, laugh, love, learn, lead and your priorities? Like, and how long did it take you to get to those? So when I joined the military, we operate in a space where we are creating warfighters, right? People who are kind of inoculated to stress and can operate with technical expertise, right? Extensive training in the technical space, extensive training in the physical space, right? Having our bodies prepared for the demands of the job. But we don't ever teach members of the military, how to exercise their parasympathetic system, how to relax, how to recover, how to restore. And so for 13 years, I lived my career in the hustle, right? In a sympathetically activated state, which leads to chronic stress, which just leads to this is how life is. And I don't find joy in what I do. And I've lost my connection to myself, but I'm super successful. And I think a lot of people, right, have found themselves in that space because that is our culture in general. It's really emphasized, I think, in high-stress occupations like the military because of the jobs we do. But I really think we live in this competitive stress culture where we're almost valued or measured based on how busy we are, how productive and accomplished we are. But I know for me, even at my most successful moments, I struggled with finding the joy and seeing and understanding and appreciating right what it took to get me to those spots. And part of it was because I was living my life inside my head from stressful moment to stressful moment to stressful moment. And I lost my connection to the laughter, the love, the learning, the leading opportunities, everything that was right in front of me. You know, I, I looked around one day and I I forgot even how to laugh at things anymore. I was trying to be perfect at everything that I did. And I lost sight of the fact that, wait, there's growth and learning in my failures and my imperfections. Like I needed to embrace those things. And so, but for all intents and purposes, everyone would have looked at me from the outside and said, wow, she's got it going on. She's a mom and she's, you know, a military spouse and she's a successful leader and a pilot and she's combat time and have done all these amazing, great things because success begets success and you can get addicted to it and everyone will hit a brick wall at a different point. You know, mine just so happened to happen, you know, was when I was going back to school for the air force. So I had the opportunity to sit back and reflect. And when you get your PhD, it's what big problem do you want to solve? Right? Like what strategic is that my degree is actually in strategy. So what strategic problem do I want to investigate? And I wanted to understand why we couldn't thrive as human weapon systems in stressful environments. What was the missing ingredient? 
And that's where I found training my mind was what, where the gap existed. And it was something super unfamiliar to me. I'd never focused in it, right? We focus in with intense precision on our body and our craft, but we don't formalize the way we train our minds to be prepared for these uncertain, stressful, rugged environments of consequence. Before we get into that, because I want to get into the training of the mind port, or definitely want to go there, success came up a couple times there. How do you define success? And is that different than what you defined it as before? So I told you my three main questions I ask when I mentor people, and one of them is how do I define success? And the reason why that question is in there is because I did not have a clear definition of it for the majority of my career. And I let other people define it for me, right? The Air Force in general, my commanders or leaders would tell me what I needed to do or what I needed to be to be successful in this Air Force career. I let the pressures, these external pressures define a lot of those, you know, milestones for me. And what I found was that none of it tied to really who I was. It just tied to what I did as my job. And so once I sat back and reflected on those three questions, what do I value? What is, what gives me purpose and how do I define success? It clarified a whole bunch of things for me. And the reason it does that, so I'm going to step back into some of the science real quick, is that the way we make decisions for ourselves is there's rules-based thinking and values-based thinking. And rules-based is the default because it's easier. We don't have to hold ourselves accountable for any decisions. We just let other people or other external factors drive our decision-making behaviors. And that's where we might say something like, I'm going to choose this career because my mom and dad said I should. Or my boss told me to take this promotion, so I'm going to take this promotion. Um, Or the organization expects this of me, so I'm going to head in that direction. And very rarely do we find ourselves in alignment when we operate with rules-based thinking. And values-based thinking, on the other hand, is where you make decisions in accordance with your values. But the key there is that it takes some work to figure out what your values are, so then you can make those, those right choices. Yeah, I like to use the analogy of, you know, our values are like a direction. It's not like an end state, right? We just know the direction we want to head because of the things that are most important to us. And so if I'm here in Utah and I set, I know my values are to head West, but I set all my goals up to the East, right? Heading toward, you know, Oklahoma, New York city. Am I ever going to be truly happy as I'm hitting those goals? Mm. No. I'm totally misaligned. But if I know my values are heading West and then I set my goals up through Nevada and California, like now I'm completely in alignment and I'll find more of not only success, but that joy and thriving in the journey. So I want to unpack your journey on this a little bit because I'm the priorities thing. Totally. I I like the word priorities because I think it's easy to call those your values, Mm -hmm. right? But they're, you're, but they're not inherent to who you are. They're the things that you make a priority in your life. And um, so I, I, I've been searching for that word. Um, so I appreciate it. The labor, laugh, love, learn, lead. So how long did it take you to settle on that? Then it might be an evolving thing. And what, what was that process like for you? It was a hard process. Um, I was not used to self-reflecting in this way of understanding who I am instead of what I do. And this is where I think many uniformed occupations struggle because, you know, I wore a flight suit for many, many years and identified as a female pilot, right? There's some uniqueness to that. There's some notoriety that comes with that label. Yeah. You feel special, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You feel special and different and and recognized for this job and profession that you, you know, dedicated your life to and service was a calling for me. And so it tied to that, which, you know, now I know was like, uh, is an important value. However, we can get very tied up in the dialogues and the narratives that we create inside our minds around what we do to the point that we disconnect from who we are. And we teach in a lot of our work, especially with Warrior's Edge, this idea of 
everyone will take off the uniform, right? No matter what your job is, whether you're in healthcare or your law enforcement, first responders, military, right? We will take off those uniforms and we need to know who we are without them. And so that's a lot of my work today is helping those military members unpack and really pull on the threads of, you know, knowing who they are first and then letting that flow into what you do, right? Because what you do is still important, but we never really sit and reflect on, well, who are we and what gives us value? What gives us purpose and where we see ourselves defining success. And so I think that's uh, an important aspect of our culture today, because hardly ever do you ask someone, Hey, who are you? Right? Like you usually say, what do you do? Right. When you meet someone new, like, you know, what's your job, what's your, and, and so I think that that's a cultural problem that we need to also work through as well. Well, or even if you ask, who are you, you'll probably get an answer of what they are. Um, Or whether it, you know, I mean, because there's so many what's that we are that make up part of the who that I think we just, which one do we identify with in that moment? And I, as you're talking, like the rules-based values-based, like click so hard for me because like, I was like a just I was that that straight edge like rule following kid um, to the point where it was just like paralyzing to think about going outside of that. And it's easy to hide behind that. It's easy to hide behind like hide the personality or things that I do or don't because I don't have to think about it. Like I have these set of religious rules. I have these set of rules for my parents. I have these rules for my teachers. I have these rules for my sports. I don't have to think like my life just goes. I don't have to think about it. And the narratives thing. So they're like tied up in the narratives in our head. This, like I'm spending a lot of time just like questioning everything. I think like, why do I think that? I don't even know. Like, um, but how do you coach people on thinking about those narratives and and thinking about um, maybe even changing them? Well, I think the first step is awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you build awareness around the fact that those narratives are inside your head? Sometimes we're not even aware that they are driving our decisions. There's, you know, everything's thoughts or everything starts with our thoughts and our thoughts, you know, lead to our decisions, which lead to our behaviors, which ultimately ties to our performance. And so it all starts with our thoughts. And so getting awareness around those thoughts and how they're shaping and leading you to your behaviors is powerful. But again, this is not easy work. This is difficult work to really sit and unpack it and, and explore it. You know, one of the things I like to say, and so for all your, the leaders out there that are listening to this podcast, is that we sh- should not give personal advice if you're in a leadership position. Because if you tell someone what you think they should do, you're introducing rules-based thinking and it's very powerful, right? Because even if the person has done some work with their values and says, oh, I really want to make this choice, but my boss told me I should do X, Y, or Z, it's going to be a powerful influencer. And so instead, I would ask leaders to consider, don't give advice, ask the right questions in a mentorship way, which are asking that individual, what do you value? What gives you purpose? How do you define success? And then letting them we're letting those decisions guide them toward what they need to do in that particular situation. Because you're right, it is very powerful and it's the easier way for many of us op- to, uh, to operate. And to, the fact of the matter is in our world today, we like easy button, right? We, most of us, I, I, I would argue, we don't have the cognitive capacity because of the world we live in. We have an ancient brain in the modern world mm-hmm. and we don't have the cognitive capacity to overcome the default options that are in front of us. And so it's just much easier to pick them. And that goes to all of our behaviors, right? Like why do we choose to binge watch Netflix instead of go to bed at night? Why do we choose to take a pill instead of changing something about our behaviors? Why do we choose to honk the horn or punch the wall when we get upset instead of calmly handling the situation? Right. Those are the uh, buttons. That point about leaders is, like as I move into more of an an organizational leadership role where I have people that I, you know, I'm responsible for that point, like it's so easy to overlook like that I'm a leader. Like I just want to be part of the team. I just want the team to work. I just want it to flow. Uh, don't look at me as a hire, but like they're looking at me as a hire. Like they know the structure of the organization. So I can't couch that in like, no, 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 like we're friends. We're cool. And, and 
even in just like casually mentioning advice, like people take that seriously. And so it's very much important. I, I, I love that. Love that tip. Awesome. Yeah. No, that's good. How do you, because there's so much unwire or so much wiring that is done to us, whether it's, you know, early childhood trauma or learned behavior or you, you name it. So taking that, all of those things, our cognitive defaults of making things simpler, our biases, our prejudices, how do you coach people to find the values, like those, the true energy, the things that make you, you. So I'm going to tell a quick story and then I'll, I'll tell you how, how I help people. Get. So Steven Spielberg gave a commencement speech where he was asked, how did you know movies like, you know, Jaws were going to be this blockbuster hit? How did you know what creative steps to take, you know, like, is it just this creative genius that is inside you? Like, how did you, you know, know what to follow? And he said that most of those creative moments were like a whisper, right? It's not going to be something that's just going to like, bam, hit you in front of the face that like, I should do this. I should accomplish this. I should go in this direction. And he said it was more like a whisper. And I think to answer your question, who we really are is inside of us, but many times it's a whisper. And the way we live in the world today is that our minds are fantastic at mental time travel. Our minds are fantastic at telling us stories that are not rooted in any bit of reality. In fact, the majorities of the catastrophes you will experience in your lifetime will only happen inside your head. They will feel very real because of the power of the mind, but they will never really happen to us. And all that noise prevents us from hearing the whisper, prevents us from hearing who we really are and what's really important to us because we get bogged down with the unhealthy default options that are in front of us. We get bogged down with the rules-based thinking that society or our bosses or our parents or other people put, you know, into our minds. And we get bogged down with living our life stressful moment to stressful moment instead of being in the moment. And so the way I coach people to filter that so that they can start hearing the whispers is through the skill set of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. We have to bring awareness around that it's happening is step one. And then step two is being able to disconnect right? Disconnect from all the noise. And it's again, not this easy thing. And I, I get, you know, people say all the time, Dr. McCauley teaches fuzzy, easy skills to the military or, you know, law enforcement. And the thing is, is that I'm teaching them hard skills, <laughs> right? Taking deep breaths. So there's just like this misnomer around what mindfulness is. Like, it's just about like taking deep breaths and centering yourself or finding, you know, peace. hugging a tree. Hugging, yeah, hugging a tree yeah. for like, you know, loving kindness to yourself or, or, you know, all of these things. Like it's hard work. The easy part is the taking deep breaths. The hard part is disconnecting from thoughts. And then the hardest part, step three, is then being able to listen to the truth. Yes. Right? Yes. hundred percent. hundred, hundred thousand percent. Yes. It's so funny because it kind of speaks to the, the, the defaults of our brain to simplify and take in the easy information. We've built this, this framework for just more compassionately connecting with others. And we're applying that in every asset and aspect of what we're trying to build professionally. And it's four things. And when we tell them to each other, we're like, this is like, it is so hard, but when you hear it, it's just like, yeah, I know, that's just easy. We had somebody say, you're just Common teaching sense. us manners. And it's like, yeah, but how often do you implement do you it? Actually, like when you're, right? when you're in reptile brain, do you, do you access common sense and common pleasantries? Not often. No. And it's the same with mindfulness, especially with mindfulness. Like when you are triggered or stressed or name the, 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 the hormone and that, that overfloods your, your, your system, even if it's dopamine and you've got a ton of it, that's just flooding your system, like finding that peaceful state. So you can think, act and, you know, behave within yourself, super difficult to do. 
And then all of a sudden you come down from that dopamine high and you're like, oh, I don't know I if I did the right thing for myself. I have a question on values, uh, value-based thinking and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You're a mother. We both have young daughters, both four and under. And um, I, my sister, who doesn't have any children, just brought this up to me the other day. She's like, oh, like you should help feel them, like feel what's going on in their body. And she gave me this like whole methodology. And I was like, it's super cool, but like that's hard. Like it's easier to have rules. Like you need to do this. You need to be here. You need to blah, blah, like, but that's rules-based thinking. And what I don't want to create is what I went through. And like, I would like for them to be able to understand their values. How do you think about mm. that as a parent? And how that's do you, good question. So two things that I do with my children every day, we're, you know, we live in Utah, so they've been in school with masks for since August. And so when I take them to school and we actually started this a couple years ago, we started it because, uh, so I'm going to back up just a little bit for, for some of the science of how our stress response works. If you think of it, um, in fact, you can Google and look up the Yerkesy-Dodson law, which is how stress is related. So stressor activation is related to our performance. And basically it's like this bell curve. As we get activated, right, our performance starts to go up. That's called eustress, right? Stress to get your edge, the good stuff. Although I will say that the majority of people who feel those initial physiological symptoms of stress, butterflies in their stomach, heart starts racing. The narrative inside their head is I'm nervous. I can't do this. And then immediately they go to the other side of the curve where now their performance is degraded because they have too much activation just by telling themselves I'm too, I'm nervous for this, which to stay in you stress, you can just tell yourself, this means I'm about to do something important. My body's telling me it's important. And my body's also telling me I'm ready. So bring it on. And many times we fall into distress, right? Like very, very quickly. And so what I had found and the way that, and maybe you guys are in this, this throes of your life right now is that I would wake up in the morning and maybe I'd check my phone and something would make me feel like inadequate or judged or angry or frustrated, right? Whether it was like news or something on social media, whatever it is. And then I'd go wake up my daughter who's like a grumpy teenager and she doesn't want to wake up right away. And so then I'm yelling and it's like six 30 in the morning. Mm. And I'm like, on this like for the day. yeah. Like, so now she's already upset. I'm upset. Then like my son can't find his shoes. Then we get in the car. They're bickering in the back seat. I hit every red light on the way. And then we get to the school at seven 30 in the morning. And I'm like, get out of the car. Have a great day. <laughs> right. And all of this stress for all of us at seven 30 in the morning. So now I'm walking into work with that level of stress. I'm already in distress. My kids are walking into school already like confused as to like, what's going on? Why are we all angry? Why am I upset? (laughs) And so what I found is that that's not an optimal place for any of us to operate. So now I do different things like not checking my phone first thing. I am very conscious and aware of that stress curve to keep our family right on the eustress side. And one of the techniques I use and this goes directly to also how do you get your kids to understand more about values um, is that when we turn this one corner before we pull up to the school, there's this blue house that has these beautiful sunflowers in the summer. But when we turn the corner and hit the blue house, we take two deep breaths, all of us in the car, and then we set an intention. And I think it's a way for us to kind of like, no matter what might've happened in the morning, what got us stressed out, what got us worked up. Maybe even if I was angry and we hit every red light and we were running late, it's our trigger to restart, reset, right? Take those two deep breaths and be like, okay, it doesn't matter what led us here. Let's just be in the moment now. And let's set an intention for what we want to get out of our day. And so even my son, as young as six years old, was stepping out of the car, setting an intention, something that was a little bit outside of him, right? So it wasn't just about like me and and my day. It was, how can I brighten someone else's day today? How can I be a better listener today? How can I share something today? And so that's been a very powerful exercise for our family to not only stay grounded in in the good kind of stress as we start our days, but also to help them start thinking about what's important. That's really cool. And it's teaching them that they can reset any time. Like it's not, it's not, you're not fixed just because the things went with bad and you reacted poorly. Like you can reset it. You don't have to wait till tomorrow or next week. 
earlier, Janelle, you said one of the things you're you're focused on is is appreciating the small things, slowing down. And then the part I want to key in on is it's hard. Yes. Um, which I agree with, but like, can you talk about that a little bit? So it's hard because it really goes against, you know, our, our basic physiology and where we kind of are as human beings today. Um, it's hard to slow down, Yeah. but if you look at the research and this is really anchored in a lot of the work that I do is this idea of slow down to speed up, right? We should all want to accelerate our professional success, right? We should all want to be badasses at what we do. For sure. However, in pursuit of that, many times we lose our health. We lose relationships. We lose like our connection with self and at what cost, right? And I would argue that if you get command of your mind on the pathway to accelerate that professional success, you will find a a space where you don't have to lose those relationships. You don't have to lose your health, but it is contrary. And this is why it's hard. It's contrary to the way our culture works today. So telling people slow down, just speed up, right? Sounds counterintuitive, but really, if you, if you dive into the research, if you dive into the evidence-based practices of people who push the boundaries of human potential, they invest just as much in that parasympathetic rest and recovery space as they do in the active, right? Sympathetic space of, you know, putting themselves in stressful, stressful moments to be yeah. prepared. If not more. Yeah. Do you think there's an opportunity to reframe our culture where we do focus on happiness rather than production? Yes. I'm cautiously optimistic around that though. Um, and I would just also rephrase that question. I don't think it's an either or. Mm. We can be productive and happy, if that makes sense. I think that's what we need to get to. I would, I would agree with you. I mean, you, you just said slowing down to speed up. It seems counter like, but what we end up doing, and I've done this many times, is we end up cutting our, no- our nose off to spite our face when we're just, oh, I got to get all this done. I'm running, 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 running. And well, but all this stuff's falling off the place. It's not really getting done right. And then earlier you were talking about competitive stress and something that's interesting is compete to create like that phrase, like those words together is it seems oxymoronical. It's like we compete to create, like I compete to win. I compete to beat you. But the root of compete is actually the, like the root words mean to strive with, to work together. And it is, I think the, the societal issue is that we have a very scarce mindset around it can only be this and not that. In, in, in so many of these scenarios, it can only be this, I, I, I can sleep or I can work, not I can sleep so I can work better. Like I can sleep and work. It, it, yeah. That's so I completely agree with you. All that said to say. Which I think also adds a question. How would you define being productive? It's almost like defining what success is, right? But in yeah. a slightly different way. So I think to define what productive means, I think we need to understand what distraction is because Mm. that's probably the number one reason or the number one detractor from our productivity is our level of distraction. And if you look at the science of distraction right now, the, some research was done on how often we mind wander. And that means having an off-task thought during an ongoing task or activity. So I I read this page in the book, but I get to the bottom and then I think, I don't remember what I read. Or I'm trying to drive my car someplace and I get to my destination and then I think, I don't remember what roads I took to get here, right? And it's because you're trying to do something intentionally and then your mind time travels elsewhere. And the most recent research tells us that the average human being will mind wander almost half of their waking moments. Mm. So when you think of that just at face value and when you're trying to think about how productive you can be 
And if you're a high stress, high performing person, I would argue that you're probably more chronically stressed even than the average human being. So your distractions might be even higher than half the half your day. I buy it. Right. Just think about how much time you're wasting. Right. Like that's what I am like heartbroken about about how I lived my life before I had this epiphany, because I think about all the time I wasted worrying about things that I didn't need to worry about or catastrophizing about things that were never going to happen instead of being present with my daughter Mm. or instead Mm. of just being joyful and grateful and outside taking in oxygen, right? Like doing all these other things in my life that would have brought me to a joyful and thriving space. And so when you talk about productivity, I would say, no matter how productive you think you are, the research will tell us that if it takes you two hours to complete some type of tasker or, you know, job performance report you're writing or whatever you're doing for your job, if it takes you two hours to do that, it really only takes you an hour. The other hour, you're mind wandering and distracted. And our digital devices are not helping this at all. You know, I think one of the latest pieces of research said just having your digital device on your person or in your view, like in your site will distract you by 20% because you're constantly mm-hmm. thinking like, is something going on on my phone that I need to be paying attention to? Did I just get an email? Did someone like my Facebook post? And that draw, because you're going to get a dopamine response from it when you see it. A little dopamine, Yeah. Right. It's very powerful. And so to have a discussion about productivity, I think we need to have a discussion about distraction and how we need to eliminate a lot of that by getting command of our mind, living more present. I like to say on the play button instead of the iPod in our mind that thinks and fast forward and rewind. So living more on the play button, and then we can actually evaluate how productive we're going to be. It's it's almost like presence is in a way like time travel. Cause like the days when I'm locked in, like where I'm actually where I'm at for the most part, whatever, like whatever number I normally am, say it's, let's just say it's 50%. Like it goes to 65 or 75% because I'm actually here. Like it's like, I look back at those days and I'm like, Oh my God, like I got so much done because I was actually like doing it. I was actually there and I wasn't I wasn't with my daughter thinking about the email I was about to write. And then I wasn't writing the email thinking about how I wasn't with my daughter and like, and all of this, the, all the other mental time travel, uh, the, the putting the science on that, that is, that's, and it goes like so much to doing things that align with your, like back to the whole conversation about value alignment, driving what you do versus what you do driving your value alignment. And when you do things that are in line with your values, your personal sentiment of productivity goes up. As you look at coaching and helping someone who does have external productivity obligations that may not be in alignment with who they are, how do you then find that so that you are maximizing the presence in alignment with who you are for those external productivity obligations. Does that make sense? I think so. Are you asking though, because there's two ways we can kind of unpack that question. Yeah. Are you asking how does an organization do that or how, no, how does an individual, how does the individual do that? Yeah. Well, so first, I mean, outcomes are important. You know, like we can't pretend that they're not, especially in the world that I, that I operate in and work in, like outcomes matter. But I think a lot of times we put so much emphasis on the outcome, driving the productivity, driving like where we pay attention and where we put our emphasis and our priorities on achieving an outcome instead of actually focusing on the things we can control and the process to get us there. So it's really a shift in mindset for a lot of people to say, well, if I, you know, I I spend so much time trying to control the external environment, if I just shifted and started putting more emphasis and focus on controlling my internal environment, maybe I would find that, that alignment and increase productivity and what I'm doing. 
Or I could also find by unpacking that, that I'm not right. This doesn't give me purpose. This doesn't align with myself. And so, and that's okay too, right? Like maybe that is an opportunity to shift to a new career or Mm. a new focus. And I realize that not everybody has that luxury at all times in their lives. So there are going to be times that we just have to control what we can control and, you know, get through whatever, you know, a period that is, but always reflecting on where there is an opportunity to start realigning and shifting to find that purpose. Now you said two ways, how can an organization do it? Mm -hmm. So the organization, I would say, this is what's very difficult for, you know, the military, we have for very long operated on this GI Joe mentality, right? Like we take someone, no matter what their background is, and we're going to cookie cutter create what a soldier or an airman or what a service member looks like. And what we've realized is that that doesn't equate to the highest levels of performance for that individual, right? Like we'll, we'll get worker bees. We'll get people who can in a mediocre, in a mediocre way, like perform their jobs, but you're not going to find this self-actualized high performing space for any individual, unless you embrace the uniqueness and individuality and help them align with the mission and objectives of the organization. And so I think we're getting there. We're starting to understand that we need to invest and that human weapon system. We need to invest in the individuality of the people that come into an all-volunteer service, right? Everybody that is in the military is a volunteer right now. And working with the Seattle Seahawks and Pete Carroll, this concept that they have that they've been so successful with is that when you're your best and you're your best and you're your best and you're your best and you lock arms together, that's how you make an unstoppable team. If I try to get you all to the same level of what I've defined as best or what I've defined as success, we're going to be disjointed. Rules-based. Rules-based. Yeah. Yeah. This is values-based. And and everybody has a different... We talk about the outcome... everybody's ability to contribute to that or everybody's outcomes is going to be different because we all have different potential. And if we're, it's like, we're, so we're turning, what I'm hearing you say, as I up in space, I'm listening, I am, we're, we're turning the wrong dials. We're, we're flipping the wrong levers as individuals and as organizations trying to crank and get more outcome when really we need to turn in, question ourselves help with alignment because when we're out of alignment, we're distracted, we're unhappy. We're only bringing part of ourselves. This is why I think people hear, I, well, no, I don't think, I know that some people hear like, we want people to bring their whole selves to work as like this hippy dippy, like, uh, you know, tree hugging earth loving thing. And it's like, no, like if, if people that work for you have some alignment and connection to it, they're going to bring their best and you're going to do better. And the par- so that's the paradigm. And I, I hear when you said the cautious optimism, it's like, yeah, like that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work on this level. And I enjoy, I enjoy this work now, but like that's, it's hard. And then trying to get an organization to do that is like, that's, that's tough work too. Well, and, and part of the hard, the difficulty with that are, are is twofold. First is as long as we keep rewarding the opposite, it's going to be hard for the culture to change, right? Like if you, if you have two people and you can promote one of them and one of them is in working every Saturday and Sunday and, you know, has all the numbers that look really good for the organization. But then the other one is more about quality of what they do. They get their stuff done, but are their numbers the best? No, but their people are the best, right? Like their people Mm. are or have a vision, like they can think strategically. They're not just playing whack-a-mole all day with the five meter targets that are right in front of them. But the problem is, is that in many organizations, that short-sighted but outcome-performing leader will get the promotion and get the reward versus the one who's more strategic thinking, the more who's the one who's focused more on the, yeah. the organization and the people inside of it. And so as long as we keep rewarding that, Right. Then that's going to be what's valued by the organization. That's what I have to become. That's what I have to become. My favorite growing up in sales organizations is take little, you know, bear. I'm just going to use a random name. I don't offend anybody. A bear is a 
Bear is a dick, but Bear is an amazing sales rep. Bear crushes the metrics. Like, so Bear is a manager now. Bear is a horrible, horrible human being to other people. But Bear is a manager because Bear can hit the numbers. So that's what we've showed we value. So it was like, well, uh, nothing matters other than hitting the numbers. So now I've got to change to be that. Now we start getting alignment to shift. Like I'm doing something I don't believe in. That's not me so that I can become the thing that I think I want to be because my values aren't set. My priorities aren't set and I'm out of alignment. Yeah. And the more bears that get promoted, right? So now you have an organization that has a ton of those individuals. Then if there's this other issue that happens where leaders say, well, this is what got me here, Mm -hmm. right? Your organization is full of people that use that tactic to get to that level of leadership. It's going to be very difficult to have them change their minds around what success looks like. Because there's proof. There's proof at that point. Like it's working, right? Yeah. Should there be a small shift though in in the actual worker B? Because like I kind of think about it from this perspective. Like I've had lots of jobs that I didn't love, but I have tons of skills from those jobs. And I actually also one of our guests said sometimes you got to figure out what it ain't to figure out what it is. Like I I know that those jobs aren't for me now, and yet they've gotten me where I am. So I think there's like a part of being aligned internally. Where you can say, like, I'm learning, I'm making money, yeah. I'm able to do yeah. this. Like, it's getting me. If I'm aligned, I can look at it and say, okay, here are the things that are getting me where I want to go. And here are the things that aren't. And maybe I do less of those. And I do more of the things that are helping in my job. I, I don't know. I think that that switch might help with the values and the priorities on the grind. Yeah. There's definitely something to that. And I think a good leader who is present and can connect with the people that are working for them and understanding that technically they work for me, but actually I work for them, right? Like my job is to remove barriers. My job is to get to know them so that I can help them achieve those levels of high performance and also ask them the right questions to help them on their journey, right? Like what you were talking about is all those skill sets you were building were part of your, your overall journey. And many times if we don't have a leader that is attuned to helping that individual in a mentorship way, trying to figure out what is most important, what is their value? Like what are, what are they doing within this organization and are they aligned? And then being okay to say, you know what, you great, you gained some great skill sets here. It's time to move on. But Mm -hmm. that's not how most leaders operate. They're like, I want a kingdom build. I want to keep everyone here. I don't really care where you want to go or what you want to do or be. Or, you know, even when when I was a squadron commander and led 400 people, I knew something about each and every one of those people as far as what were their goals and dreams? What did they want to do? You know, when like not all of them needed to want to be a general, right? Like not all of them needed to want to be the chief master sergeant of the air force, right? Like, they could just be in the Air Force giving it all they had for their five years, their six years, their 10 years, their 12 years, whatever it is, and then go out in society and do something else that's great. But we get really caught up in the mindset that like, I have to make this a career or I have to be all in or I'm not allowed to have other hopes and dreams. And so that's where good leadership matters. How did you get to that place then? Like, how, like that's a lot of time. To have all this conversation, like that's the biggest complaint I hear from a lot of leaders. I don't have time to like recruit or to talk to my people. Like, how did you, how did you get to a place where it's like that's a priority and it's okay for them to be who they are and 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 do this? Like, how did you get there? So part of it was you know my own journey becoming very attuned to this idea of how our minds work and what's most important and understanding my values and all those things and how that helped me align. But I had some things that I did. So the first was I was more productive, right? I, because I didn't mind wander as much because I could stay focused in the things that I did because I stopped listening to the noise in my head as much as I used to. I could, could be more productive in the things that I needed to get done, which then created white space for me to do things like uh, no email Friday. Mm. So every Friday I would no meetings, no email. I would spend the entire day getting to know my people, 
right? I would go to their different workstations and just talk with them, the young airmen, ask them. Well, yes, I would learn about their job a little bit more. What was more important was I got to ask them questions about who they were and what was important to them and creating those connections. I did uh, personal notes. I used to write a handwritten birthday card to every single person that worked for me. And part of that was an opportunity to reflect and say, oh, it's, you know, Sergeant Jones's birthday. Sergeant Jones is, is doing this for this organization. And this is something unique about them that I remember from a conversation I had, and I would write it down in the card, right? So then it would be a memory trigger for me. I, you know, called people's parents, right? The people who worked for me, whether it was their, maybe they got an award or were just doing a good job or got a promotion and I would call someone special for them. And so those connections, right, were my opportunity and created that ability for me to really get to know them. Now, I will tell you, I wasn't the leader that had the top numbers of, are my performance reports done on time? Are uh, all of our metrics tight and pretty because I did those things. But for me, the priority was the people. And were we still getting the necessary outcomes to do the mission? Yes. Like that, that was like, what do we need to do to get the mission done? And then as I really invested in the people, those things started kind of like working themselves out. Right. But did I get awarded like re or rewarded for that as a leader in the air force at the time? No. Mm -hmm. Did that bother you? Bear Bear got promoted. Bear got like, you know, good old bear. Good old bear. It it did bother me, (laughs) of course. Right. Like I have an ego, Mm -hmm. but I never sat down and said during this command, opportunity. My number one goal is to get myself promoted and the number one stratification and to get highlighted. Like none of that was my goal. My number one goal was to do the right thing. And that meant taking care of my people. That meant shielding them from stuff that was going to drag their mindset down and and create an inability for them to accomplish, you know, what they needed to to get their job done. There's such an observation of the real life deathbed test happening as I listen to you talk about that. Like we, we get so caught up in the now, even though we mind wander and think, Oh, I need this. I need this now. I need this. I need this now. And then like, you know, the deathbed test, we all look back and think, boy, I wish I had better relationships. I wish I had managed my family better. Nobody ever says, boy, I wish I had gotten promoted. Right. And like, I see your deathbed test looking back and going, I lived it. I did what I needed to do. Right. I want to ask a question about that real quick about the discomfort, like not liking it and still moving forward. I can only imagine that that would have its own heightened level of pressure and magnifying glass on your performance. Did you feel that or did, did, did that exist? Oh, absolutely. I was one of, I, I was the only female in my pilot training class. I was many opportunities throughout my 20 year military career. I was the sole female in many rooms and many crews that I was on and organizations I was part of. When I was a commander, there were 25, I would say leaders uh, um, at, at the wing that I was in from like the wing leadership, the group leadership, all the other squadron leadership. And I was the sole female right out of those people. And there were many times people would say she has an unconventional style of leadership, bold and unconventional were two of the words that people would say Hmm. about how I was leading differently. Um, I will admit that the unconventional things that I did, I never asked permission right? I just did them, but no one ever challenged me Mm -hmm. straight up said, why are you doing that? And you can't do it anymore. Right? Like, because I think deep down, everyone realized I was right to do it differently, right? Like everybody else did it the way we all did it. Same, same, right? Because that's the standard, the military way. And I was challenging that on all levels. And I don't, I think everyone deep down realized she's on to something. It was still different and unconventional. So they weren't brave enough to try it themselves. But I think they realized that they didn't want to harpoon it, but, um, I did not get rewarded at the time. I will say right now, 
it's ironic that I am extremely busy helping other leaders do what I did. I, I feel this personally a lot in corporate America. And I, I think this could help other people because like you continued on in a way that was very unique, didn't get rewarded for it, didn't get punished for it. You were able to move and you found the courage to like, maybe maybe a word around how you found the courage to do that because it's really easy and i'm saying this from personal experience to just get in line and and then that creates some disalignment disalignment misalignment misalignment that's it i think keith that's what you were going to ask too like where did i ask about courage yeah you know when i first started talking about it that would be a common you know i'd give a big briefing to a room full of like 300 military officers and i talk about this stuff and the most common comment people would say to me like in private afterwards, it's like, gosh, you're so brave to say the things that you were saying in this environment. And many people were skeptical, right? Didn't like it. Um, it was scary. I'll say two, two things happened. The first was I was, and I was far enough along on my own journey of self-discovery and mindfulness that, you know, Dr. Gervais talks about FOPO, fear of other people's opinions, right? Mm -hmm. And, and Warrior's Edge and, and can be to create. And it's a powerful influencer to for our decision-making on whether we're going to take risks, right? Our fear of other people's opinions. And that could have held me back a lot more than it did. But because I was far enough on, along on my own journey where I could filter out a lot of those opinions and just focus on, but what's the right thing to do? I don't care what people are going to say about it. Just what is the right thing for me to do right now for the people that work for me? Um, that's probably the first aspect of where some of that courage came from. But ultimately, I will admit, when I first started the, the things I did, I led by example. I was very hesitant mm. to start squadron policies, initiatives, right? Like to be directive in these things. It was more like, Hey, I'm going to be a mindful leader. I'm going to exemplify this. I'm going to be the calm in the storm. Instead of creating the storm, I'm going to make people like curious about it. I did teach everyone about their stress response. And I, and we kind of came up with this go to the cloud concept, which was when you feel your stress response, before you tell yourself a story about how you're going to be mad, or you're going to make an emotional overreaction. I want you to take a step back take two deep breaths, and then refocus on what's important. And so I taught everybody that from day one. And then they started asking me like, well, what are we doing when we go to the cloud? What should I be thinking about when I take deep breaths? Which then introduced like more and more opportunities for me to share some of the work. But I was still hesitant to create policies, right? Mm -hmm. and it. Until I lost an airman. I had an airman face so much adversity and challenge in his life that he made a choice to drink himself to death to handle it or to manage it. And he didn't feel like he had any other resources or opportunities in those moments, right? Or empowerment to choose differently, to change his thoughts. And that right there, when I had the conversation with his parents around everything that had happened and how I didn't have a good answer for him as to, or for them as to how their son was in that position. Right. And why he didn't have better tools, why he didn't feel empowered. And it was then that I started being more directive and writing policy because the pain of fear is very powerful, right? You're fearful of other people's opinions. You're fearful of just like what could potentially happen, but the pain of regret is also really powerful. And I didn't want to live with the regret of knowing I knew things to help people. And I kept silent because I was fearful of this organization and the way we've always done things. So my own journey was part of it. And then that second part was that incident with my airmen where I never wanted to feel like I didn't do everything in my power to equip people to make better, to change their thoughts and make better decisions for themselves. So thank you for sharing that. For the purposes of our audience listening, wherever they are on their mindfulness journey, to wrap, would you be able to leave us with what a mental push-up is and what a mindful minute is and how to execute it? Yes, for sure. 
Um, so really what mindfulness training is, is it's training our attention system, which is kind of like a flashlight, right? It can be directed at what's going on in front of us, or it can be directed at our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, right? So where we know from the research, we are higher performing, we make better, more rational decisions is when our flashlight and our attention system is in the present moment. So mindfulness training exercises our attention system to stay more on the play button, right? And in the moment. So the way that I have found to be most successful with that exercise, getting that training in is to think of what it is, is mental pushups, right? We are strengthening that attention system to stay in the moment. And so that's really what a mental pushup is. And we, I use the mindful minute because everybody can take a minute. We all have time in our day where we sit at a red light. We sit um, in a line at the grocery store. We are just have a moment of where boredom could come in, but what do we do? We pull out our phones, right? Most of the time in those spaces, even without awareness, like we'll pull out our phones and start scrolling at something. And so I like to teach the technique of a mindful minute because I want you to bring awareness to when you're pulling out your phone and instead think, could I just be doing one minute of mental pushups right now instead of grabbing my phone, you know, every, every time there's a lull. And so it's right. So it's micro bites of getting this training in. So that's why the mindfulness is so powerful. And the way we do that is we're going to, going to anchor on our breath for that minute. Now we anchor on our breath because it's free and always with us, right? So it doesn't matter where you're at. You can use it. And you want to anchor on one part of your breathing because there's a lot of sensations you'll experience. So what I found to be most effective is if you focus on maybe the way the air goes in and out of your nostrils or the rise or fall of your belly or chest, but focus intently on that particular sensation for an entire minute. Now, in the span of a minute, your your flashlight is focused on, say, the in and out of the nostrils and your mind starts wandering off. The first step is awareness that you want mind wandered off. Second step, let go of the thought. Third step, refocus back on your breathing. Every time you lose focus, regain focus, that's a mental push-up for your attention system. All right, so ready to try a minute? Mm-hmm. Together, we'll do it at the end. Okay, so start with just a nice deep inhale and exhale, kind of relax through your shoulders, lift your head slightly. You can keep your eyes open or closed, whatever you're most comfortable with. If you leave them open, maybe just channel your attention down the bridge of your nose to limit any visual distraction. For the next minute, I want you to focus on one particular sensation of your breathing. Ready? And go. Thank you.